I announced and we have been promoting the fact that I'm speaking this morning on a very different subject, and that is the subject is election 2016, our moral dilemma, our moral dilemma. It's not so much a dilemma for me, but it is for many. Every time I speak on anything political, I sense a tenseness comes in the air. You ever sense that? I'm very sensitive to my audience, and I look, what, read their body language, and everybody goes into this posture <laughs> that I don't know what he's going to say, so I'm not going to commit myself at all. See, there's Dr. Poland sitting right there already, <laughs> already postured up. Didn't take him long to get it. <clears throat> well... The reality is, is I think that preachers ought to speak to whatever the issues are. Mario Diaz, in an outstanding book called Be Spent, Winning the Fight for Freedom's Survival, said in the preface of his book, and I quote, America stands at the edge of suicide. There's a struggle within our soul that is more dangerous than any external threat that we face. We are walking down a path that puts us in direct conflict with the very God we relied on to establish this great nation. Is there a more frightening thought than that? Liberty is not just the right to do what we want. That is libertarianism. True liberty is the right ordering of society so that we are able to honor God and protect the dignity and inherent worth of God's image bearers, every human being in that society, end of quote. And so, as a minister of the gospel of Christ, I don't think we can skirt the issues that are the very soul of our survival as a country. How could a preacher not speak to those issues today if God's Word speaks to them? And certainly it does. And so I hope that you will give special heed today. Stand to your feet with me, if you will. I'll lead us in prayer and then remain standing and we'll read the Scripture together today, okay? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, and I come to ask you for wisdom and guidance as I preach this message. Lord, all of us who read and who think and who observe what's happening in the nation, we are so concerned today about the very survival of our republic. And we don't feel like we have the best of choices this time, and so we need wisdom. But, Lord, I'm mostly concerned about all these people in the country who call themselves Christians and say, I'm just not even going to vote. Oh, Lord, may we remember the blood of the patriots that's been spilt. May we look at these handicapped people among us who lost an arm or a leg or an eye, and sometimes even their sanity, 
because they fought somewhere for this country that we could have this privilege. Almighty God, we pray for the country. We pray that you will heal it. We pray for moral sanity. We pray for revival. Unless you send us revival, unless your people who are called by your name humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, Lord, we don't have any hope. But if your people would awaken, Lord, if we could just abandon even a small amount our mad pursuit of materialism and pleasure, and we could give you the time and give your work, your church the time and the effort and the heart that is so needed, maybe, just maybe, things could turn back. Oh, God, hear my prayer. And lead me as I preach. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I told you to be seated, and then I said, you know. Okay, just be seated and follow with me in your Bible, the book of Proverbs, if you will, please. Typically, we stand out of reverence to God's Word, but He'll forgive us today, I believe. Proverbs chapter 16 in your Bible. And if you would look at me with me at verse 12, it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, kings being leaders, political leaders. It is an abomination to kings or leaders to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. And then we go to the book of Proverbs chapter 25 this morning, if you will, please. And in verse 5, 25, 5, take away the wicked from before the king, the advisors of the king, the leaders, and the king's throne shall be established in righteousness, twice the Bible tells us. Leadership, the throne, shall be established in righteousness. Chapter 29 of the Proverbs, verse 2. And when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Have you noticed that America, American people are not as happy as they used to be? Have you noticed that America does not have the joy and the victory and the lilt in our step that once we had as a nation? Right there is the reason. When the righteous are in authority, people rejoice. There's hope. There's something to aspire to. And when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. In the book of Isaiah chapter 1, if ever there was a description of America, you'll find it in Isaiah 1. I'll read just select pieces of the verses because I don't have time to read them all, but I'll begin in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 5. The old prophet says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, and children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, and they're going away backward. 
Verse 5, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, Baltimore, Ferguson. Your land, strangers, illegal immigrants, devour it in your presence. It's desolate and overthrown by strangers. Verse 9, what is our role as Christians? Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. A very small remnant. A group of people who are righteous people. Unless the Lord had left that to Israel, he said, you would have been like Sodom and you would have been like Gomorrah. The only thing standing between the United States right now and being totally given over to the same sins as Sodom and Gomorrah is a small remnant of people who cry out against the evils of the day and who seek to live righteous lives. Now, our moral dilemma. Corrupt is the only word that comes to my mind. Corrupt. The vast majority of Americans today believe that Washington and both of the major political parties in this country and the governmental agencies, the bureaucracies, the majority of people believe they have become very, very corrupt. Pictures in my mind of Iris Lerner as she testified before the Internal Revenue Service, and it was proven that she, in fact, had discriminated against Christian groups and conservative groups, uh, holding back their nonprofit status because they were conservative. And then I think recently of Loretta Lynch, the head of the Justice Department, meeting in her airplane on the tarmac in Phoenix, Arizona, with Bill Clinton, the husband of one of the candidates who was under investigation by the Justice Department. And she had a private meeting with him for 30 minutes in the back of the plane. The news is reported, that's not my opinion, that is, in fact, a fact, ladies and gentlemen. And then the FBI director who admitted to Trey Gowdy that for five times in a row, uh, Mrs. Clinton had, in fact, lied to the FBI, but then no charges were ever brought. Don't you try that. Don't you try that. There are special privileges for some people in our country today. When I look at the Democrat Party, I see a party that used to be the party of working people. It's now embraced a very far-left agenda. It put chills on my arms, and I'll never forget at the last convention when they booed when the name of God was mentioned on the convention floor. I will never, I will never live long enough to forget that, I promise you. And then I think of the Republicans who were supposed to be the conservative party, but they have abandoned their conservative base. They've caved in to the lobbyists and the special interest and the multinational corporations. And most of all, they have become weak and cowardly. They will not take on the issues of Washington, D.C. 
And so I have no more respect for them than I do the other side. And then there's the media, which was supposed to report the facts and inform us so that we would know who would protect our rights, who would protect the constitutional issues of our day. And they have become the propaganda wing of the left in this country, the agents of political correctness, and in fact, the promoters of immorality. And so out of that melu now, out of that mixture comes the candidates, out of that culture of corruption. And number one today, we have two flawed candidates, two flawed candidates. Before you judge me for being judgmental, I want you to understand what I mean by that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about this in a biblical context. Webster's Dictionary defines the word moral. It says that moral means to be concerned with right and wrong which implies we have to make judgments. We have to be discerning. We have to say, this is right, this is wrong. Moral means to be concerned with right and wrong. As Christians, we are concerned with right and wrong, are we not? Now, then the big question in a postmodern world is who determines what is right and wrong? And I submit to you today that the only one who can absolutely determine right and wrong is our creator, the one who called this universe into existence, the one who today is the moral conscience of the entire universe that he created, Almighty God. He is the one who determines right and wrong. Well, but how do I know what the creator's thinking? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because he gave us a book here. Mine has about 1,800 pages in it, I think, in which he helps me discern right and wrong. This is his infallible and errantly inspired word. We say that often. We really believe that. And this book is what defines right and wrong. Bill Monroe, my opinion, does not make something right or wrong. And what the Baptists or Presbyterians or Catholics say does not make something right or wrong. And what you think about it, by the way, doesn't determine whether it's right or wrong. It's right or wrong depending on what this says. And it's very, very clear in here on most issues what, in fact, right and wrong is. Now, if you take the Bible and measure the candidates that are running for the highest office in the world right now, then both of the candidates fail the character test. Both of them fail it very, very badly. On the other hand, we as Christians have to understand that we don't, we're not voting on a pastoral search committee. I wouldn't want either of the candidates to be my child's Sunday school teacher. But they're running for president, which is sort of a, a contradiction in terms, is it not? But you understand what I mean by that. And God doesn't always use perfect people. Do you know that God used a man who was an extreme womanizer, who said he had never drank a drop of wine, who was a liar, and who had real funny hair? 
No, I'm not talking about Trump. I'm talking about Samson. So God has used some pretty weird characters throughout all of history, has he not? But we do know some facts about the candidates that causes me to say they fail the, they fail the character test, the moral test. The Republican candidate has a filthy mouth. I mean, very bad, vile. He's a proven adulterer. He's a promoter of gambling, which would bother Christians. The Democrat candidate, I believe, is guilty of the greatest immorality that you can possibly imagine because that is the promotion of abortion. In my opinion, I, can, I cannot think of a, a greater act of immorality to promote the taking of innocent children's lives from them while they're in their mother's womb and then to vote for that and finance that around the world even. It's hard for me to stand in front of a big audience and know that this will be put on television next week and call somebody a liar. I've looked for alternative words. There isn't another one. Over and over and over, emails, Benghazi, the facts have determined that she doesn't tell the truth. Corruption comes to mind, a family foundation that's nothing more than a money laundering operation. Less than 10% of the money is even given to charity that is sold influence to foreign leaders. A person who gets $250,000 for a speech for 20 minutes from wealthy Wall Street people. I'd like to hear that speech. 250, how much is that? About 10,000 a minute? And now the WikiLeaks thing has come out. WikiLeaks is the international nonprofit organization that uh, exposes uh, secret dealings of governments to the public. And thank God for them in this case, even though they hack. Thank God that we're finding out a little bit. We now found out through those documents this past week about her disdain for Catholics and for evangelicals and especially for conservative people. And in which her staff called us misogynists misogynist. She's saying that we hate women because we believe in the biblical role of women, misogynist from the Middle Ages. And then we learn from the staff how they plan to infiltrate the church and spark a revolution within the church. Generally, we have a liberal and a, and a conservative to vote for. This time, we don't. We have a far-left progressive who has served in an administration whose goal is to fundamentally change America, and by the way, they have. But we have a pragmatist, a man who is sometimes conservative and sometimes he's very liberal. And so the character of the candidates poses a moral dilemma, and a lot of people just say, well, I'm not going to vote. 
But as a Christian, there's six issues, and you may want to write these down, six issues above all others that will always shape my vote in this election and in other elections as well. First of all, I believe that all human life is sacred. I believe that all human life is sacred. I don't believe in a woman's right to choose if that choice involves the taking of her unborn child's life. If it requires the killing of another, my choice has to be abrogated. Secondly, I believe in a traditional marriage and family. And both candidates fail on that one, both of them. Both of them are in support of at least parts of the LGBT agenda. I believe in religious freedom. I think it's the most important thing in the contribution of America. In John chapter 8, the Bible says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And if the preachers can't preach the truth, or they fail to preach the truth, then ladies and gentlemen, there's no opportunity for freedom to flourish in a culture where the truth about the Creator Himself is not being told. And so I'm for that. The first mention in the First Amendment to the Constitution of our country that's guided us for 240 years and begins by saying, there shall be no law respecting religion or the free exercise thereof. No laws. It's off limits. You don't make laws about people's religious convictions. And yet I watched... Four years ago, when the National Democrat Party actually became the anti-Christian party in this country, promoting abortion, promoting the LGBT agenda, threatening to force churches to hire homosexuals, whether we, regardless of our convictions, we have now gone so far down the line, so far, that under Obamacare, recently the and it was tested in the court, and, and the court upheld the law. And uh, the ruling was this, that under Obamacare, we are now forcing the little sisters of the poor. Now, if you don't know who the little sisters of the poor are, the little sisters of the poor, of the poor are, is a Catholic order. It's a group of nuns. There's not very many of them. There's about 50 or 100 of them. But the Obamacare agenda forced the nuns to buy health care that would cover their abortions. Just think about the implications of that in terms of religious freedom. Whether you think so or not, if you'll study your Bible according to Romans 13, national defense, national defense becomes a biblical issue. Because according to the Bible, the most basic function of government is to defend the people. What greater immorality is there than to leave a whole nation of people defenseless where they cannot defend themselves? And so, we now watch troubling events in the world, the rise of Russia. While America was watching football games and going to reunions and having a good time, which there's nothing wrong with, but we're just not focused on this thing, I fear. This past week, the Russians sailed 10 destroyers and battleships up the English Channel as a show of force 
against the United States and NATO, demonstrating their new power that they have. And in China, they're building whole islands down in the South China Sea. Now our airlines have to fly around those islands to go to China. And the media is not telling you this very often. Just check me out. Look it up. You'll find it to be true. Our military is the smallest that it's been since before World War II. In my opinion, and from my years of study of Scripture, that becomes a very big moral issue, whether or not we are allowed to defend ourselves. This whole idea of immigration has become such a big thing. I'll simply say this about it. Write these references down. If you want to look in your Bible, you can find that immigration policy also is a biblical issue. And write down the Numbers 34. And when you get there, you're going to have a very difficult time reading Numbers 34. And the reason is it's full of all those very strange names from the Old Testament of places you never heard of and that don't even exist in many cases today. But here's the point. In Numbers 34, God is saying, this is going to be your borders, Israel. And so God gives the names of the places that is their northern border, their eastern border, their southern border, their western border. God himself wrote a whole chapter of Scripture defining the specific borders of a nation. And then you come down to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verses 3 through 6, if you want to write those down, you will find that God said, now, here in Israel, you have your borders, but do not allow immigration from these specific countries because these people are your traditional enemies. They do not want to immigrate into your country and assimilate. They're not here to help you. They're here to hurt you. So there is a time when immigration should be stopped. That's a biblical model of that. The economy becomes an issue with biblical overtones because the Bible teaches very clearly the private ownership of property, personal responsibility and stewardship in the expending of our money, economic freedom. A person ought to have the right to spend their money how they wish, and, of course, voluntary charity that we give, but we don't give because the government is holding a coercive position on us. We give because we are charitable in our hearts. We want to help other people. And as our country continues its slide to socialism, we know that socialism has failed everywhere in the world. It's been tried. Russia, China, Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela. In Venezuela today, I recently read, people that are middle-class people are searching through dumpsters and garbage cans trying to feed themselves with scraps because these dear people have lost everything that they've ever had, not too far from us in our own own hemisphere. And the last one, the sixth one, is I think the Second Amendment is a biblical issue. I think that people have the right to keep and to bear arms. Now, you may think that's strange coming from a preacher, 
But the last time I read uh, Luke chapter 22 in my Bible, I read about Jesus getting arrested. And I read how that Peter, who had a concealed weapons permit, pulled out a sword. And he slashed a guy, he even gives his name, Malchus, and he cut off his ear. But I can tell you in the Greek, it says, he, uh, Peter was not aiming for his ear. Old Pete was going to slice him like a watermelon, friend, and he just missed. In fact, he said to Jesus, read that context. It's an interesting context for pacifists particularly. He said, here we have two swords. Is that enough? And Jesus said, yeah, that's enough. But he didn't say, get rid of your sword. So if I extrapolate that over into my Bible study, it's pretty clear that people have a right to defend themselves when they're attacked. Now, as Christians, then we must vote. And to me, those are the issues. Can you back up and put that up there again? As Christians, human life is sacred to us. We believe in traditional marriage and family. We believe that we must have religious freedom. We believe that our country, that the purpose of government, Romans chapter 13, is national defense. First purpose of government. We believe that the economy that we ought to be able to work and own property and earn and invest and do whatever we wish with our money. And we believe we ought to be able to defend ourselves. Those, ladies and gentlemen, are clearly Bible issues. I'll give you the references if you need them again. And, and so we must vote. And I don't know how you will vote, and I'm not here to tell you how to vote, but I'm going to vote on those six things. That's the criterion by which I will vote. Now, we're not the first that have ever had that dilemma. William Wilberforce is one of my heroes of the faith. Wilberforce served in the English Parliament, and he's the first man of power anywhere in the world to say slavery is an evil. And, and Wilberforce began, a very powerful man, he began to seek to stop slavery in, in England and ultimately in America. In the parliament for 20 years plus, William Wilberforce would introduce legislation to stop the slave trade and to free all the slaves. And for over 20 years, it was defeated year after year after year after year, 20 times the English Parliament voted him down. He was one of its more influential members, but he never stopped the fight. In fact, he became almost obsessed with it. He would travel the country of England preaching and talking to various groups and churches and civic clubs and anywhere he could get an audience, telling them why the slave trade was a terrible, terrible evil. And literally, on his deathbed, the English Parliament passed a law that outlawed the slave trade and freed the people who had been slaves. He literally signed the bill while he was lying on his deathbed. And so he finally achieved the victory. But here's what he says in one of his journals. He said, I discovered, 
I discovered in working on this slave thing, there was not enough people that I would have considered righteous people that we would ever get this bill passed. And he said, and these are his words. He said, I learned that in order to have enough votes to outlaw the slave trade, I would have to work with some people who, and his words were vile people morally, very evil people we would say. Certainly not Christians like Wilberforce. He was a wonderful Christian man, a great scholar of the Bible. But he said, I will have to cooperate with and coordinate with people who are extremely vile in their lifestyle. But we've got to do that in order to have enough votes to pass this this measure. And he did. And he would talk about how he would meet with these people and their language was so horrible and their lifestyle was so evil. But he still had to work with them. So we're not the first people who have faced these kinds of contradictions in life. And then I think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and perhaps that's the greatest illustration of a moral dilemma and a moral conflict that I could possibly use to illustrate. Bonhoeffer, as you know, was the Lutheran preacher, probably the best-known preacher in his nation, in the nation of Germany, prior to World War II. He came to America. He had a Ph.D. in theology from the most prestigious of the German theological schools, in fact, two or three of them, highly educated, brilliant, intellectual, we would call him if he were alive today. And Bonhoeffer actually came to New York and lived a year and went to a black church and got saved there. Here he is, a Ph.D. theologian, and he's lost. And he got saved at a Baptist church, a black Baptist church in uh, Harlem when he was living in New York, studying at Union Theological Seminary, a very liberal seminary. He went back to Germany, and the war was beginning to build in Germany, and Hitler was ascending to power. And he would hear the news of the people being incarcerated in the concentration camps. He knew about the crematorium where people were pushed in and burned and nothing left but their ashes. It troubled his conscience. He did everything he could, but the government kept crushing him and the others that were trying to oppose it. Finally, Hitler took over the church and co-opted the church in Germany. The churches were silent about the Holocaust. And a plot was formed. The plot was to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And they came to him, a preacher, a man who had tremendous influence and was morally impeccable. And he agonized he prayed. What would you do? Here's what Bonhoeffer wrote, I quote, to hold the moral high ground and have nothing to do with the plot is to let millions die. There's one option. an assassination plot to kill Hitler. I can remain silent 
and the crematories will keep on burning up millions of people. I can be involved in a plot to kill, but we'll stop the deaths of millions of people. Talk about a moral dilemma. Talk about a dilemma. Do you know what Bonhoeffer did? He joined the plot. Now, there's been a movie made of it that how the plot was unsuccessful. They were going to blow Hitler up, and somebody set a briefcase with a bomb under a table, and they set it behind the wood, big, thick wooden leg, and it didn't have its end. Killed the impact of the bomb, and Hitler walked out of there. And the agents of his secret police began to look for people, and a few weeks later, they, they arrested Bonhoeffer. They put him in jail. They took the long strings out of a piano. And three weeks before the war ended, they tied it around his neck and hung him with a piano string. Talk about a death. We're not the first who faced moral dilemmas that, are, that agonize in our souls. So I tell you, you must vote. The purpose of my message today is that I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm telling you to vote. And to refuse to vote is to disobey the Lord's command to be the salt and the light. I have influence. The only way I can use that influence is go vote. And to vote for one of these third-party candidates, have you looked at their agendas? Well, you need to study those. But don't throw your vote away. There's one issue that is more important than any other issue, and that is who's going to be appointing judges to the Supreme Court? More than any other issue, even more than the abortion issue to me, because that will impact it. If we could get pro-life judges, we might in time turn that back. But if we get liberal progressive judges like some of them are on the court now, my children and and my grandchildren, for the next 40 years, those people are appointed when they're 40. Many of them serve until they're 80. There's three of them on the court right now at 80. They've been serving for 40 years. For the next 40 years, policy in this country will be shaped by those people. I heard somebody say to vote for the lesser of two evils is to still vote for evil. That may be true, but here's the other side. To not vote for the lesser of two evils is to, by default, vote for the greater of two evils. So we have two flawed candidates. 
With one of them, I have no idea what he will do. He's wilder than a March hare. Been shot at for three months. And with the other one, I know what she will do. So there's your, there's our dilemma, isn't it? So you, you study the issues. You pray and you vote the Bible. You vote those six issues that I talked about as, a, as an outline. Now, one other thing. As Christians, our hope is not in the political process. Sometimes the political activists wear me out. They act like that my whole destiny is based on some politician. I'm here to tell you today, my citizenship is also in heaven as well as in Washington. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. I have dual citizenship today as a, as a Christian, as a believer. And so, uh, let me make a statement. And, I, and, and when I tell you this statement, some of you are going to instinctively disagree, but I want you to give, you, you think about it a little while, and you may not disagree. Here's the statement. Politics have absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Politics have nothing. Zero, zilch, zip, nada, nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Boy, you say you're dogmatic. I sure am. You know why? Because Jesus stood in front of Pilate and he said these words, John chapter 18, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. But my servants are not going to fight because the kingdom that I lead is not an earthly political kingdom. It is the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. Someday it will come to the earth and someday it will be a political kingdom when I rule and reign on the throne of my father, David. But right now, it's a spiritual kingdom. And you know what? Whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or conservative, the work of God will go on. Now, it's a little easier for it to go on when you have a traditional American culture like we've had. The Constitution has given us wonderful rights as Christians, and the work of God and the gospel can go further and faster. However, there are wonderful Christian people today in North Korea and in Cuba and even in Iran. Yes, it's very, very difficult, but Daniel chapter 4 says that God, speaking of God, it says the kingdoms of this earth, he rules over them. And I want to tell you today, our cause as a church and as Christian people does not end no matter what the election results may turn out to be. And, and, and I'm, I fear that some of you are going to go into a deep, dark depression if it doesn't go the way you want it to go. And I want to tell you, the work of God is going to go on. We're going to be faithful to Christ. We're going to stand on his word. We're going to preach his truth. We're going to continue the mission that we've had here for 40 plus years. And it's a great tragedy if we would not address these issues today, by the way. And I didn't want to end like that. But you applauded and took my thunder here.
Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.